Good morning, church. Good to see you. Name is Brandon Ziski, lead pastor here at Osmos Church. I want to say good morning to all of you who are watching online and also to those of you who are enjoying the beautiful day outside. Glad to have you here. Um, two quick things before we get into the text this morning. Um, on June 13th, we're going to have another Celebration Sunday. We're going to have these as quarterly events in the life of our church where we're just going to celebrate life change. We're going to come together as a family. We're going to do something different. We're going to be outside in the courtyard again, celebrating life change, baptisms. And even I hear a rumor circulating out there that there's going to be barbecue, you know, and all that kind of stuff out there. So I want to encourage you to do that. But here's what I want you to do, okay? I want you, again, to be thinking about who is that person that you can invite to come to church, and these are perfect Sundays to invite your friends or your families, your colleagues, your uh, classmates with. Because it's just simply we want to provide an opportunity that doesn't feel as threatening sometimes for people to come inside the church, to be outside. And we want them to hear how Jesus changes their lives. Okay, and it's just to celebrate together. And what's awesome about that was last time when we made that challenge, there were some folks, we had a bunch of names that you all wrote down brought it to the front, we prayed over them. And what was really cool, if you recall, we baptized 16 people that Sunday. And a few people gave their life to the Lord. They confessed Jesus as Lord that weekend. One of them specifically was on that Sunday. And that was a name of someone that wrote down on the card that we were praying for. And they came that Sunday and gave their life to the Lord and was baptized that Sunday. So that's exciting. So don't underestimate what the Lord can do. So I want to encourage you to do that, be thinking about that ahead of time. Also, um, exciting news I want to share with you and uh, I want to covet your prayers. Um, I think covet your prayers is like church lingo. We never use that phrase anywhere else. I don't know why that just naturally came out of my mouth. Uh, but Seth and I, we're heading to Rwanda today. <laughs> so I want to share with you a little bit how that came about. So if you recall... In October, November, and December of 2019, um, we had a team in the summer there that went to Rwanda. They came back and they shared with us what God was doing there, but also pressing upon me, just saying like, hey, there's an opportunity for us to partner deep with Africa New Life. And to, they want to get into this village, but the way they get into those villages is when we build a church or plant a church and they can begin to sponsor certain kids there. And so we're like, you know what, let's just do that. We'll be the church that does that. And we brought it to the church family. And lo and behold, we raised the funds to do that. And then Charles came, you know, this past summer. And we sponsored the majority of those kids that were part of that village, which was so, so incredibly exciting. So we were supposed to go last year, but COVID happened. And we weren't able to go, but God's hand was all over it. Because what is, we're pumped about is that on May 7th, the facility that we funded, their first Sunday that's open, or the first day that's open, it's going to be the day that we're there. So Seth and I get to be able to preach there and, and lead worship there and all sorts of things. And so we're excited for that. Pray for us. I want to encourage you to do that. This is going to be a great trip for us um, as we're going to develop deeper partnerships and how we can take African New Life and our partnership here as Austin Oaks Church to the next level, which would be great. So I want to encourage you to pray with me as we get into God's Word this morning. Jesus, I thank you. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it's alive and it's active. Lord, I thank you that you're full of grace and you're full of truth. Lord, as we come together today, celebrating communion, remembering the gospel, Lord, I pray that you would challenge our hearts Help us see who you are and understand a little bit more of who you are. We pray this in Christ's name. 
Amen. So I want to encourage you, turn with me to Luke chapter 7. We're going to be in Luke chapter 7. And before we get into the story this morning, I want us to remember the context of this letter. This is so important for us to understand because as we read and dig through the gospel of Luke, we got to remember that Luke was writing this with a specific intent in mind. He had a person that he was writing this story out to. And we got to remember Theophilus. Now, when Luke wrote this, the movement of Christianity was in its third generation. And Luke wasn't a Jew. He was more than likely a Roman who partnered with Paul. He journeyed with Paul and heard Jesus being preached in multiple communities and saw the power of God at least. And so Paul led Luke probably to the Lord and he confessed Jesus as Christ. And Luke was so moved by this that he wanted to write an orderly account to help people to meet, know, and follow Jesus. So let's start all the way back in Luke chapter 1, in verse 1 through 4. Luke writes this, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who were from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you. So Luke is taking, you know, all of the interviews and all the details that he's hearing about what Jesus has done. And he was writing this in a very unique and and detailed account because he wants most excellent Theophilus, a God-fearer, more than likely a wealthy Roman aristocrat, to hear about Jesus and so that he can place his faith in Jesus. Like it says in verse 4, that you may have certainty concerning the things that they have been taught. Now we got to remember the first generation, second and third generation of the movement of Jesus Christ was in a political landscape that was extremely oppressive. Especially if you were a Christian within the Roman Empire, they were persecuting that will. Romans did not at all favor Christianity. They were under immense persecution and Jesus came proclaiming himself to be Lord of Lords, King of Kings, and the gospel, which is the power of God for all who believe, started to turn the world upside down. And Luke wanted to detail this in an orderly account so that his fellow Gentiles, his fellow Romans, would place their faith in Jesus. And so when we look at this story, it's important for us to remember this context because we're going to see something here that would have caused Theophilus just to take a deep breath and to lean in on this story. It would have been a shock, not just to Gentiles, not just to Romans, but even to Jews as well, that this story has the capacity to amaze Jesus. It's phenomenal. So as we come to this text, we're going to notice four things. One, we're going to see the beauty of the gospel and the fact that it's for all people at all times in all places. We're going to see in this story how important it is to see things how they are, to have a spiritual self-awareness. And we're also going to understand what worth is and where do we find worth. But most important of all is this little phrase that is fascinating, is we get to understand how to amaze Jesus. Think about that for a moment. How many of you would love to amaze Jesus this morning? I'm not being rhetorical. Okay, we got one. Like, like think about that. If you had the opportunity to amaze Jesus, wouldn't you want to learn and to know what that is? And we get to see that in this story. So let's look at Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, 
he entered Capernaum. And now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. When a centurion heard about Jesus, he sent him elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly saying, note this, he is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself. Note this, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at them. He was amazed at them, turning to the crowd that followed him, saying, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent to return to the house, they found the servant well. It doesn't take long for me to imagine Theophilus, as he's reading the papyrus at this moment, stopping and going, wait, what, a centurion? Like, I can, I can imagine, like, as if, like, have you ever been reading a book and you've just been reading for a bit, and next thing you know, you kind of doze off a little bit and something catches your attention? This is that moment for Theophilus. Because as he comes across this, verse 2, you hear a centurion. And that had to have piqued his imagination, like, okay, what is this about? I mean, Theophilus clearly understands the cultural dynamics at play with the Roman centurions. They are legitimately and literally the physical enemies of the people of God. They are people who look down on the nation of Israel. And in this story, there are all sorts of characters here. We got the disciples. You got specifically the 12 that Jesus called to be with him. We're coming off of the story of the Sermon of the Mount. We got some of the Jewish religious leaders and elites following Jesus. They're curious to know. But there's also some that aren't thrilled with Jesus because they don't want him to stir up trouble because Rome is there. And an odd character, a centurion, the Roman Empire is the present cause of oppression and mockery of God's people. It's a stain on the nation of Israel. They come in and they, they pollute the temple and bring in all sorts of idols into the temple. We know clearly that the Roman military and the empire, whenever they conquered a nation, they saw that people group as inferior. They were an inferior race and they deserved to be our subjects. If Babylon was the personification of evil in the Old Testament, Rome is the personification of evil in the New Testament. A centurion in the culture is like a modern-day army captain. He's wealthy. He has power. He has influence. He's a man of authority, probably oversees at least 100 soldiers. He has freedom to do what he wants to do as he sees fit as a Roman centurion. So when Theophilus comes across verse 2, now a centurion, that had to have been a moment I'm, I'm, where we, he would just be like, okay, what's going on? But now as we look at the story, it's fascinating what causes the centurion to move towards Jesus. He had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. Now, at that time, 
like death was a common thing. It was like the, the average age expectancy was about 50 years old. And, and he had a lot of servants in his employ. But this one was different. This servant somehow had a, a relationship with the centurion where he probably saw him more as a friend. And so he cared deeply about him. And the centurion is in this crisis mode and he doesn't know what to do. So he hears that Jesus is coming and he's like, this is my act. Let's send people to find Jesus. Don't miss the cultural stuff here. Because no way in any shape or form would a Roman centurion ever call upon Jews for help. And no way would any Jewish elder ever run errands for a Roman centurion. It just wouldn't happen. So this is a tense scene. He calls in verse 3 the Jewish elders to come. And then they go and they, call, they plead earnestly with Jesus. This is the most unlikely connection. But friends, I got to tell you, this is the beauty of the gospel. Bringing people who would never be brought together, together. We see something here that is so profound. And I know Theophilus has got to be asking the question, will Jesus come to someone outside of Israel? Will he bless a wealthy and a cruel Roman centurion? And if he does, what does that mean for me? That is an important question to be asking. Verse 4. And when they came, the Jewish elders came to Jesus. Just, just hear this. They pleaded with him earnestly. They're like imploring Jesus. They're, they're building a case for the centurion to Jesus, pleading with him earnestly, saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him. That is fascinating. He loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. Verse 6, these next words are so beautiful. And Jesus went with them. I want to focus on those words for a moment. Jesus went with them. Would a normal Jewish rabbi at this time go to a centurion? No. Would a priest? No. So why would Jesus? The Jewish people are already thinking they don't deserve it. Look at what they've done to us. Look how they're desecrating our people and our nation and all the things. Like, don't, they don't deserve any blessing from God. They don't deserve to have any favor from God at all. But Jesus went with them. Why? These Jewish elders, they're well respected in the community. They don't run errands for anybody. They don't run errands for their own kind, especially Roman centurions. So what caused them to go to Jesus? What was it? The centurion, the one with power, the one with position, the one with wealth, humbled himself to call upon Jewish elders to go to a Galilean itinerant rabbi peasant named Jesus. And they go make an appeal on Jesus' behalf. And this is what I want to point out. What was the appeal? And what caused Jesus to go? Why did Jesus go? Was it because this, the Jewish elders somehow convinced Jesus that indeed the centurion is worthy? Or was it something else that Jesus came for the sick and the lost, even Roman centurions? 
Even people who aren't like us, who don't think like us, who don't sing like us, who don't dress like us, who don't vote like us. I mean, this is a culturally loaded piece right here. Jesus, friends, listen. Jesus doesn't ever need to be convinced to ever go after his lost sons and daughters. He doesn't need to be convinced. The Jewish elders are trying to build a case to Jesus. He's worthy for you to go. Like, look at all the things he's done. Jesus, I'm trying to convince you to go. Jesus like, I don't need to be convinced. He's created in my image. He's a lost son, and I came for the lost. This is why I came. No ethnic boundary. Friends, listen, this is what the world needs to understand about the gospel and why the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ for all who believe. The gospel is the power of God to bring about unity that nothing else in this world could ever do. We see a glimpse of it right here. There is no ethnic boundaries that could ever hold back our God from coming to save people. There are no social boundaries, no social constructs that we have created in this world that can hold back Jesus. There are absolutely no exclusionary causes that can hold back the gospel. Jesus will never, ever, ever refuse people because they aren't like us. Jesus makes it crystal clear that the gospel doesn't and will never discriminate based on externals, ever. Jesus went with them because the centurion was lost. Nothing Absolutely nothing can hinder God's love from breaking all of our human constructs. And this is good news. And this is why the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only thing that can unite people. The cross makes it clear, neither Jew nor Gentile, male nor free, uh, male or female, free, uh, rich or poor, free or slave, all come to Jesus the same way. The gospel is the power of God. I love that. It wasn't like these Jewish elders somehow convinced Jesus, like Jesus was going, okay, what can he do? What did he do? Because I only see people of great importance. Oh, you're right. He is worthy. I will go. Good case. They pleaded earnestly with Jesus. Just picture that for a moment. And what were they using? They never mentioned the man's heart. They never talked about his character. They never talked about the fact that maybe he was a God-fearer in search of God. They never talked about maybe that he knew the Torah and was actually looking with the fellow Jewish people for the coming Messiah. No, they just came and said, listen, he loves our nation. He's worthy because he loves our nation. And right on the heels of that, here's how they explain or describe how he loves our nation. He built our synagogue He's the sole donor of our church. Jesus, can you imagine what would it be like if we had him in our pocket? Let's not upset the apple cart. Jesus, he's worthy. Deep pockets, power, influence. Imagine if he was part of what you were doing. What could happen if you had a centurion with you? They're making the case based on all the externals. He's worthy, Jesus. He's in our corner, Jesus. Don't miss this one. They placed the value on the external, not the internal. 
They saw the good works of the centurion and, and said he's deserving. And so they took that case and they brought that to Jesus. Look at what he did. Oh, how we do this. It's so subtle, friends. We don't realize we do this all the time. We do this to ourselves all the time. If we were to be honest with ourselves and slow down enough, what do we value more about ourselves? What do you think we equate worth more when it comes to self-assessment? Let's just be honest. The internal or the external? A lot of times we look at what we don't have. Or we start to think that, look what I've done and somehow this deserves God's attention. I, I earned this. We place our value on our worth based upon what's out here. We do this all the time. Even God said when in the Old Testament, like man looks at the outward appearance, but God, he looks at the heart. When we judge ourselves and we look at ourselves and we base so much of our worth on the things that are on the outside, we find worth in this world and in things of this world and it's so subtle, it's so sneaky, it's so covert. Why do we drive the vehicles we drive or why do we covet the certain vehicles? The homes we live in, the clothes that we wear, the places we go, our looks, our appearances, our bank accounts, our networks, all those types of things. How many of you have gone into debt for any of those things just because you think that somehow if you got that, that would add some value to you? I want to ask you a question. Do you think that any of the external things amaze Jesus? Do any of these external things that we think have worth, that we think somehow makes God deserving of our attention, like, God, look at all of this. You're right. I am so proud of you. You got that car. Way to go, buddy. I'm amazed. Whoa. None of those things amaze Jesus. None of them. And do you know why we get ourselves so wrapped up in valuing our worth based upon the external things, the successes, the pedigree, all that kind of stuff? It's because we do that to other people. We subtly do it. Again, I know we don't like to admit it, but it's, it's there. We're impressed with people with achievements and success and stuff. When you meet wealthy people, you're like, somehow you think that they're more deserving or people of power or platform, and you're like, they're more deserving. And like, you ever feel that? Like, you feel less than that person? But like, does any of that stuff impress Jesus? But it impresses us, and we're moved and influenced by that. I mean, I've been in the church world long enough. I've talked to multiple pastors from all over the place. And we have this common, common theme that we hear a lot of times with churches when it comes to who makes or what makes a great elder candidate. And without thinking about it, a lot of times churches will respond, are they successful in life, a.k.a. business, therefore they're qualified as an elder. Well, you're like, wait a second. How is that a qualification? 
And we put in like successful business people at the elder board thinking that's what makes a good elder board. Not to say those traits don't help. But we look at the external things. We do this all the time. And let me tell you, the church is not exempt from this either. Generally speaking, how many churches have made bad decisions based upon upsetting the major givers in the church? I went there. You can't do that. You can't upset the apple cart. They're the givers. And if they leave, they leave. I don't know what we would do. We, 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 we favor those with those external things. But that doesn't amaze Jesus. And we got to be careful of that. Because that's not why Jesus went. It wasn't because these Jewish elders were pleading with Jesus. Look at all the things he does. He's got the money. He built our synagogue. Come, Jesus. That's not why Jesus came. We get a glimpse as to why Jesus came when we look at the centurion. Verse 6. And Jesus went with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself for I am not worthy. That is key. I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. At this moment, Luke is almost in a way saying, don't be so impressed with the miracle of the story. The miracle is awesome, but what you ought to be moved and impressed with is the heart of the centurion. The condition of our heart that makes us able to receive Jesus and to experience the power of the gospel. We are so often consumed with out, and obsessed with outside appearances that we miss the heart. And if we miss that, we miss out the presence of Jesus in our lives. Because we all have to understand there's nothing, nothing that we can bring to the table to impress Jesus. There's nothing that you have that's a gain when you come to the table to say, look at me, Jesus. I deserve this, Jesus. There's nothing How is your ability to see things as they are? I mean, you can look at the body, a certain lake or body of water, and you can go, oh, this is really clean and clear water because you can see through it. But even if you were to take a sample of that water and hold it up to a microscope, you would realize that water is still contaminated. That's what God's word does to our heart. When we start to recognize who God is, we start to recognize who we are. And this is the first thing that we need to have is a spiritual self-awareness. The Jewish elders, they begged and pleaded Jesus, saying the centurion is worthy because of all of these external things. You should come. And the centurion is saying, I have all these things, but yet I'm still not worthy. And like, you just imagine this, okay? He sent the Jewish elders... Jesus is on his way, and the centurions even have his second thoughts about this, like, wait, 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 wait. I don't even want him to come to my home. So he calls his friends, or probably soldiers, to stop Jesus from coming to his home. And he says, I'm not even worthy of you, Jesus, to come to my house. That's why I didn't even presume myself to come to you. 
Friends, listen to me. If you want to experience the gospel of Jesus Christ and the power of God and the presence of God in our life, we have to understand this, that any plea or any platform of self-worthiness before Jesus is unsustainable before him. Absolutely unsustainable. And when we realize, when we become gospel self-aware, we begin to realize that Jesus is drawn to this type of humility. When we can see things for how they are. Yeah, Jesus paid it all. I can't boast anything in myself. There's nothing I can bring to the table because they're all filthy rags, but he did it. Humility is the key to producing fertile ground in our heart for faith to take root. Humility reveals a hunger for God. It tells us that we can't do this in of ourselves. We need something else. The centurion was humble enough to call upon the Jewish elders. He was humble enough to realize his status before Jesus, to even send friends saying, stop. He was humbled enough to even recognize that Jesus has greater authority than himself. That was an angel saying, amen. <laughs> Look at the contrasts. The centurion says, I am not worthy. Look at all that he had. And the Jewish elders are saying, he's worthy. The centurion made his appeal not on what he could bring to the table, the centurion was making his appeal on the heart of God. I know who you are. You are the Lord. Somehow the centurion recognized Jesus as the Messiah. I know you're good. I know you're faithful. I know you're loving. I'm making my appeal on your heart. And I know how this works. All you have to do, Jesus, is say the word. Just say the word. I mean, this centurion understands authority. He's a captain. If he tells any of his soldiers or any of his servants to do something, they have to do it. And a centurion is making a major connection that oftentimes we don't make. He's recognizing that Jesus is Lord of Lords, has authority over the visible world and the invisible world, that he can just say a word. He's, he's connecting the dots in his mind. He knows, Genesis, that if God can just say, let there be light, healing someone from a distance can't be that hard. I know you're a person of authority. You created everything. Just say the word and you'll be healed. That is confidence. This is not a unworthiness. Oh God, I'm so bad. Pity me. I'm the worst person in the world. That's not that. That's a humble confidence saying, I have nothing. And I'm appealing on your character, God. That's how the gospel works. That's how faith works. You have nothing. And you appeal to God on his word and his character. And you rest in that. You lean in on that. <laughs> this is so good. <laughs> like legitimately, this is so good. You can make fun of me later. I love this. Verse nine, 
Picture Jesus in this moment. When Jesus heard these things, the, the actual Greek word here is he, he amazed. He marveled at him. He was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, he basically says to him, y'all don't have faith. Like, like this Roman centurion that you all hate, that you're actually mad at me, that I'm even thinking about going, I haven't seen faith like that in all of Israel. Two times in all the Gospels where Jesus is amazed. Two times. Right here. And the other time is in Luke 4 when Jesus is in Nazareth, his hometown, telling him about the the mission of, of Jesus, the kingdom of God, proclaiming the good news to the poor. And his own didn't believe him. And it said that Jesus did some miracles but couldn't do more because of their lack of faith. And his own people, he was amazed at their lack of faith. So apparently, there's really only one thing that amazes Jesus. Faith. Having it or not. Now, the not having a faith is is not like saying, like, what about those people who have never heard about Jesus? That's not it. It's those who've been made aware that God is who he is and yet still choosing to not believe it. When he's made himself clear and revealed that he is the son of God and yet you choose to not trust that, or, 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 we know God's word, we know the promises of God and yet we choose to not put our faith in that and God would be like, wait, you accepted the cross and the resurrection but you don't walk by faith, that amazes him for our lack of faith. So the question I want to ask you is, how are you amazing Jesus this morning? I don't know what you, but that gets me excited that I can amaze Jesus and terrified at the same time. But this, friends, this is where faith grows. This is where faith strengthens He had certainty in Jesus. I want to talk about faith for a moment. Because a lot of times, people don't understand faith and how faith works. I want to encourage you in your small groups to dig deeper into this or find someone to get into a discipleship relationship with and start asking questions about faith. But let's look at this real quick. Hebrews 11.1. Faith is the assurance, it's the confidence of things hoped for, it's the conviction of things not seen. Faith is the assurance or the confidence. My old mentor in Minnesota, he used to say this to me all the time and I loved it. It made sense for me. He goes, Brandon, all the things that we hope for, all of the promises of God that are out there, what faith does is faith grabs those promises those things that we hope for, and faith grabs it and brings it in and says it's true. And it's like saying, no, this is a reality. 
It's the assurance of things hoped for. It's the confidence of things hoped for. I hope God loves me. That's, this is one that sounds simple, but a lot of people have a hard time with. God loves me unconditionally. It takes faith to believe that. We hope it. Faith grabs that hope and says it's true because God's word says that he died on the cross and he conquered death in the grave for it. He's going to come back again. It's true. God is good and he's promised to turn all things out for the good of those who love him. We hope that's true. Faith says, nope, that is true. I'm going to act as if. I'm going to be at peace in that. God heals. God always heals. Well, I know this is contentious. I'm going there too. Not always now though. Everybody will be healed. We will all be made whole. It's true. God provides. It's true. Faith is the assurance. It's the confidence of things hoped for. It brings these things in. It claims them as reality. And that's why we say amen. Amen isn't just a perfunctory thing that we say in church to move on to the next part of the sermon or the service. It's not just something you say quickly so you can eat the food that's sitting over your nose. Pet peeve. Long prayers at dinner. Not fun. I'm pretty sure Jesus is like, hey, it's getting cold. Then you. Amen is a faith statement. Amen is grabbing that hope and bringing it in as certainty. That's what faith is. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 through 20. As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you was not yes and no, but in him it's always yes. Verse 20, for all the promises of God find their yes in him, in Jesus, because of the cross and the empty grave, they're all a yes. That is why Paul says, through him we utter our amen to God for his glory. All of these things that he says, all of these promises that are in his word are true. And faith grabs it and brings it in and says, amen. Jesus, you just have to say the word. That's why I say it this way. Faith is an exercise of reality. All of these things are are true. Faith lives as they are true rather than I hope they are, I don't know. That faith amazes Jesus. And the clearer we see who God is, the clearer we see who we are in light of who God is, the stronger our faith becomes. How do we grow our faith? Well, first and foremost, faith comes from hearing. And hearing comes from the word of God. You've got to get in your word to know him and his character and what he says. If you don't know the promises of God, what are you grabbing hold on to? Grabbing hold of. These are all a yes in Jesus. Like, grab hold of them. There are, they are a yes. Jesus sealed that. They are a yes. They're not debatable. It's not open for negotiation. Yes. That's why Paul says in Romans 12 that our minds ought to be renewed. Well, how do we renew our minds? We get in his word. We worship him. That's based out of his word. All these things, we interact, we pray, and our minds are renewed. And then we're able to discern God's will. Faith amazes Jesus in the positive and the negative. 
And I hope now, this is why maybe this makes sense for the first time, Hebrews eleven six. And without faith, it is sometimes, you're sometimes able to please him. I'm just seeing if you're with me. Like, like look at this. Without faith, it is impossible. It's impossible to please God. If you think you've got something to bring to the table, you have something to boast in, and that is not faith. That is not pleasing. He's amazed that you still think you've got something to bring. As we come to see Jesus for who he is, we get to see ourselves for who we are. There's nothing that we can bring that would ever make us deserving of Jesus to come to us. He comes to us because he loves us. He came for the loss. He came to bring redemption and restoration and salvation. That's why he comes. But he knows that when we recognize who we are, the facts, their spiritual self-awareness, that humility produces the perfect environment for us to place our faith in him. Hebrews 11, verse 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. How are you amazing, Jesus, this morning? I'm going to ask Seth to come up and play a song, and I want to encourage you guys just to think about that, wrestle with that. Ask certain questions to yourself. How do I see myself? Do I think that things on the outside externally add value, like somehow I can bring that to the table and convince God to work in my life? Ask yourself this question as we prepare our hearts for a communion. How does God see me? How does God see you? I know sometime I'm going to come up, and if you haven't grabbed one of these on your way in, I encourage you to do so. After some time, I'll come up and lead us through communion.